let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come to your word, that we would hear from you with your spirit's help and be sanctified by this truth. We pray that it would cause us to see Jesus by faith and put our hope in him, that we might live for his glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Who in life do you trust? That often depends on what we need and what that person does. So if you're young and you're thinking of your future, then you probably trust a good teacher. But if you're older and thinking of your health, then you probably trust a good doctor. But we have lots of needs in this world. And so we're often called to put our trust in many different kinds of people. Coaches, mechanics, accountants, friends, family, pastors, or ourselves. But who we trust in depends on what that person does. Because what that person does says something about who they are. So think about your life and who you trust with it. Is that person giving you the life that you need and the one you want? The good news of the gospel is that you can trust Jesus in every part of life and even in death. And it's all because of what he has done And the work he's still doing. And one day will complete. That's the truth that we're pointing to in our passage this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, if you're using one of the church Bibles, you can find that on page 945. 945. If you're new to the Bible, the large bold numbers are the chapters. And the smaller numbers are the verses. And this morning we're looking at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. Now, for context, in chapter 1, John the Baptist and his disciples all testify that Jesus is the Messiah. That's God's promised deliverer and king. Then, in chapters 2 through 4, Jesus is presented as being able to bring bring the blessings of God's kingdom into this world. And all who believe in him can enter into that kingdom and enjoy eternal life. Chapter 5 begins a new section that starts dealing with the issues related to Jesus being the Messiah, but also what that means for his relationship with God as God the Son. God the Father and God the Son are equal, and therefore these chapters start to highlight the opposition to Jesus. Not everyone believes or welcomes Jesus, or you could say trusts. But based on who he is and what he does, we should. Now, that might be confusing if you were here 
for the sermon in chapter 4. Because there, Jesus rebukes those who won't believe his word unless they see signs and wonders. But signs aren't bad. They're good. That's why Jesus does them. They too testify about him. But what Jesus is offended in chapter 4 is the refusal to believe without a sign. In fact, it was all about the signs and not the message in chapter 4. Well, here in chapter 5, the people of Jerusalem get a sign without asking for one. And they look right past it and oppose Jesus because the sign doesn't benefit them. It doesn't look like it does anything for them. In other words, they don't think they need what Jesus does for this cripple. And Jesus will end up using that against them. So here's what we want to do today. If you're taking notes, this is the main response that we want to come away with. Not just today, but every day. Respond to Jesus based on the kind of work he has done and is doing. Respond to Jesus based on the kind of work he has done and is doing. And if you're taking notes in order to respond correctly, we need to do two things, or understand two things. First, understand Jesus' work. This is in verses 1 through 9. Understand Jesus' work. And second, understand our need. Understand our need. This is in verses 10 through 16. So first, understand Jesus' work. Look at verse 1. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there's a pool called Bethsaida, in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So here we have Jesus once again going to Jerusalem for another festival. Another feast, another visit to Jerusalem. It's John's way of marking out a new section in this gospel. And what happens in these first 16 verses that we're going to cover today is really the setup for the conversation that's coming in in verse 17. Sorry, in verse 17. This is where Jesus begins a dialogue with his opponents. But that's next week. So these first three verses are really the setting for the setting. It starts with this pool by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem called Bethsaida, which has five colonnades. And interestingly enough, because of those details, we've been able to confirm the exact location of this event today. This isn't a fable. It's a real story about real people. Verse 3, a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Now, why are they all there at this pool? Well, it seems like John's audience already knew, because he doesn't tell us. Apparently, the local belief is that from time to time, this pool had healing power when an angel would come down to stir it up. But then only the first ones in had a chance at being healed. Now, I say that because of some ancient commentary that used to be included as verse 4. I don't know if you noticed, but verse 4 is missing. It's probably included as as a footnote in your Bible, or maybe you have a translation that includes it in brackets. And that could be disturbing to some of you. 
right? Because what else might be in the Bible that shouldn't or maybe should? And I want you to be confident that what you hold in your hands is a trustworthy word from God. Let's say you're investigating a crime and you've only got two witnesses and they're each saying something different. Well, how do you know which one of those two to believe? It's really hard when you only have two, right? But let's say 50 more witnesses show up and one by one you interview them and they all agree with the first witness. Well, now you know who to believe. And it's the same with the Bible. We have hundreds of manuscripts available to us, and for some parts, even thousands, and we can date them. So when it comes to the few places like this where there's a question, we know this was probably added later. In this case, probably to explain to later readers why there's such a large number of disabled people at this pool. But what's important about this setting isn't so much the historical background on this pool as it is the interaction that Jesus has with this one man. Verse 5. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat and started to walk. Now, that day was the Sabbath. Now, again, that's a real person. This was a real event. So we want to put ourselves in his shoes. For 38 years, he hasn't walked. You're confined to a straw mat. And the only hope you have is really weak. Your only hope is for someone to carry you to a pool before anyone else gets there, and maybe something miraculous might happen. Jesus sees that guy lying there, and knowing that he'd been lying there for a long time, he asks, do you want to get well? Now, does Jesus really need to ask that? If you're that guy, you've put yourself in his shoes, and Jesus shows up and says, do you want to get well? He's been dealing with this for 38 years. He's at that pool for a reason. I think he does. But questions from Jesus are rarely just questions. They're usually doing something for that person. Just like the question God asks Adam in the garden when he says, where are you, Adam? God knew where Adam was, but did Adam see where he was? God's question helped Adam see the consequences of his sin. Open your eyes, Adam. When have you ever had to hide from me? So at the very least, Jesus' question is an invitation to seek help in him. But based on the man's response in verse 7, Jesus' question does more than that. It reveals the depth of this man's need. He's helpless. His broken state isn't something he can just fix on his own. No self-help book, no therapist, no medication is going to solve his problem. He answers in a way that says, Look, I can't even get myself to the place where somebody else could help me. Jesus chose a cripple for what John calls a sign for us. The question 
is for the man so that the man might not only see the depth of his need and his own helplessness, but so that he might see Jesus when Jesus heals him. And Jesus does that with a word. Verse 8, get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. The word is said, and the work is done. Now, usually, Jesus does miracles in order to confirm faith. He's confirming faith in him as the Messiah, usually. But as we'll see, Jesus isn't just, isn't just filled with compassion for this guy. He's initiating a confrontation with his opponents about who he is based on his works. And so he heals this guy apart from faith, confounding modern-day false teachers who make everything that God does dependent on how strong the faith is of the one being healed. But Jesus simply heals him anyway and does it by speaking. Just like God does his own work in creation. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He speaks, and all of creation comes into existence. He breathes life into people. And the breath of Jesus does the same here. As he speaks, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And at that moment, the effects of sin and death present, and that disabled man are gone. Now, why do I say it like that? The effects of sin and death are gone. Well, when God created this world and made men and women in his image, there was no such thing as sickness and death. There was simply life. The whole world was full of God's blessings as people creating his image enjoyed all that he made according to his commands. That's what life is for. This is the life we're made for. It's a, it's a life that enjoys God. And whether you know that or not, your purpose in life could not be greater than this. You were made to bring God glory in this world by enjoying him. That is life. But when our first parents rebelled against God, Judgment fell, and death began its reign in this world. And we see the effects of death all around us. Sickness, disease, famine, natural disasters, violence, and death itself. Apart from sin, we'd all be saying, what's sickness? We know none of these things. But the just penalty for rebelling against the God of life is death. But in God's mercy, even before judgment falls, he made a gracious promise. One day, a child would be born who would reverse the curse of death. And as the story of the Bible unfolds, this co promise comes with profound implications for a new creation. Isaiah 35, verse 6, Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy, for water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or Zephaniah 3.19, Yes, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcasts. I will make those who were disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. By choosing to heal a paralytic, 
Jesus declares that the kingdom of God and the blessings of the new creation are coming into the world through him. Jesus is the one that God promised would come and save us from the curse of sin and death. And he did it by living the life that we should have lived for God. And then at the cross, Jesus laid down that perfect life for all those who would ever put their trust in him. Jesus took on our sin and died the death that we deserve under the wrath of God. And since the penalty for our sin was paid in full and the wrath of God exhausted, three days later, God raised him from the dead, victorious over sin, Satan, and death. Guaranteeing our own experience of life in a perfect world that he's going to redeem. That he's recreating. But clearly, that's not yet. This world's still messed up. I'm messed up. My body's falling apart. 41 this month, it hurts to sleep. We, we still have a need and a hope to be fulfilled. Meaning, there's still work to be done. And Jesus is the person for that work. That's the point. When Jesus is arguing with the Jews right after this, he says in verse 28, Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves, okay, not just disabled, not just walking around this life broken, but those who are dead in the graves will hear his voice. He will speak again, and they will come out, or they will get up. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. The healing of the paralytic is pointing us to that day of salvation and judgment and the work that Jesus will do on that day by his word. Do you feel your need for Jesus yet? If so, believe his word and trust in his work that he has done on the cross. That's where we see him conquer death. And trust in the work that he'll complete when he comes. Because he's been resurrected. That's your only hope. And Jesus wants to make that clear. You see, this whole scene just seems really deliberate. Jesus is doing everything on purpose here. There were many disabled people. Jesus chooses a paralytic. Not only that, but he could have said, get up and walk and just leave it at that. The man doesn't need that straw mat anymore. But Jesus knows what day it is. It's in the second half of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath, a day of rest. And the conflict that this will create presents an opportunity to reveal the kind of work that Jesus is doing With his opponents. So he doesn't just tell the cripple to get up and walk, but to carry his useless mat on the Sabbath, which Jesus knows the Jews are going to take issue with. The Sabbath is the day that God's people rest from all their work and worship of God. And Jesus is using this day to further clarify his work as the Messiah. 
It means that he can do the same kind of redemptive work that his father's still doing. Even though his father has entered into his Sabbath and rested from his six days of creation work, he's still working. Look ahead to verse 17. Jesus responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. God the Father and God the Son are doing the same work of redemption. And there's no kind of work that broken sinners like us need more than redemption. We're longing for this new creation work to be completed. Telling this cripple on the Sabbath to get up and carry his mat is a sign telling us who Jesus is. No other religion No other philosophy, no other solution to the problems of this world can do the new creation, redemptive work of Jesus. Listen, with all the cause for peace in the world, with all our technological advancements and scientific discoveries, this world's still messed up. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't good things. They're they're very good things. Praise God for those things. But if you hold out hope that the human race is somehow going to create utopia on earth and will somehow eliminate all problems of disease and violence, I I don't blame you at all for wanting to be optimistic and hopeful. But I think we're being just like the cripple sitting by the pool, thinking we might get in. And maybe we'll be healed. It's not a real hope. It's a very weak one. Look around. It's 2022 and we're talking about nuclear war. The only person in all of history that we can trust to do the healing work of a sinful, cursed world is Jesus. So when you hear or see things in this world that you just know shouldn't be, it's because they shouldn't be. When you experience evil done against you and tragedy strikes and it's like all the joy and life is just sucked out of you. And when you sin against God and you know that you deserve death and there's absolutely nothing that you can do to to save yourself or heal yourself. In all of these things, you need to feel your need for Jesus. And you need to trust Him. And so you need to respond with faith and obedience. And you can do that today if you haven't done that yet. And if you have, you need to keep doing it. And if you do that, then one day you'll experience the fullness of Christ's new creation work even more than this cripple did but only if you see yourself as being just like this cripple spiritually. Otherwise, you'll likely be offended by Jesus and continue to oppose him one way or another. So if we're going to respond to Jesus based on the kind of work he does, we not only need to understand his work, but second, we must also understand our need. Understand our need. Look at the second half of verse 9 again. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. 
Who is this man who told you, pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was healed did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. This newly healed man's creating quite the scene around Jerusalem. But it's not because he's walking. It's because he's carrying his mat. That's why the Jews are confronting him in verse 10. This is the Sabbath. The law prohibits you from picking up your mat. Now, Moses nowhere says in God's law that you can't carry your mat on the Sabbath. God's law forbids the usual work that you would do in the, the other six days of the week. So forbids something like your occupation. But in an effort to keep the law, the religious leaders had come up with an extra set of rules acting like a protective fence around God's law. So if you keep these extra rules, then you can be confident that you're not trespassing against what God has said. So God's law forbids doing work on the Sabbath. Therefore, the Jewish tradition created 39 more rules for not working on the Sabbath, the last of which is not carrying any object from one domain to another. So when they say the law prohibits you from picking up your mat on the Sabbath, they're talking about the law they've created in light of God's law. But to them, it's just as legitimate. That's why they're so concerned and upset with this man, and no doubt feeling quite self-righteous about it. But can you see how deceived they are? They're so caught up in these additional rules to God's law, that instead of rejoicing with this man and giving praise to God, they're pointing their finger at him. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here, and Uh, we understand that that might be how you think about religion. And there are some forms of religious practice like this, uh, including whatever is taking place on a secular platform like Twitter. But it's not Christianity. Because it's obviously not what Jesus is about. Verse 11, The man who made me well told me, pick up your mat and walk. And so he did. He's he's kind of defending himself, like, this is the obvious thing to do, right? I mean, what else am I supposed to do? The guy told me I got healed, so I'm going to do what he says. And that's how obvious our own discipleship to Christ ought to be as well. What would we think of this man if Jesus healed him, and then he halfway obeys Jesus? He gets up and walks without picking up his mat. Like, uh, no thanks to that part, Jesus. I, I think I got what I needed from you. If Jesus died for us, then we must live for him. If he frees us from the shackles of sin, we must run to repentance. Immediate, full obedience should be so obvious to those of us under, who understand grace, experience that grace. But then, is it so obvious to us at home, or in private, or throughout the week? Or is it possible that kind of like these Jewish leaders, that we have some kind of moral or religious checklist blinding us to God's grace at home, or throughout the week? And we've got worldly needs at the forefront of our cares, so much so that we are missing out on what godly repentance really ought to look like in our life. 
As if you see and understand all the ways in which you experience God's mercy every day, then do what Jesus says and obey his word. Otherwise, you either treat him like a good luck charm or you oppose him outright. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I I hope you'll keep coming. And if you start doing what Jesus says and it benefits you, or you simply see what following Jesus does for others, let that lead you further into the truth about Jesus and his cross. Part of the reason Christianity seems to work for people, like creating healthy families or something like that, is because it calls us to repentance. It calls us to obedience to God's word. We, we put off our sin, and it's all because of who Jesus is, And what he has done and has promised to do. But the Jews here don't clearly see what Jesus has done for this man. They can't see the implications of this new creation work for who Jesus is. All they see is a guy breaking their law. Even after he tells them in verse 11, he was healed by this man. Look at their response in verse 12. It's not, who is this man who healed you? But who is this man who told you to pick up your mat? Isn't that amazing? Can you see how the condition of our hearts can be so blinding? And how prone we are to the same sort of thing when God's work doesn't seem to benefit us. At least not the way we can tell. I mean, just to help put ourselves in their shoes, you have to know why the Sabbath is so important to them right here at this point. It's it's not just that God's law says they must keep it holy. And it's not just that their ancestors were sent into exile for profaning the Sabbath. It's also because at this point in time, they live under Roman rule. And the most important bulwark they have to protect their Jewish identity and national pride as a people is the strongest of all cultural practices that they have as a people, the Sabbath. Without the weekly Sabbath and everything that comes with it, their Jewish identity, who they are as a nation of people, is unprotected from the erosion of the engulfing waters of paganism that surrounds them. So can you start to identify with them? This isn't about the man's healing. It's not about Jesus. They don't know it, but it's not even about God. As Jesus says in Matthew 5, you praise God with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You're like whitewashed tombs. They're concerned with this man's actions because they're concerned about their Jewish way of life. And no doubt, they felt justified and self-righteous about that. After all, they're being faithful to God. But clearly, outward conformity to the law has replaced heartfelt commitment to God. Their response to Jesus is based on the implications of his re- work regarding what's important about God's law for them, but not based on the kind of work he actually did. And that's a danger for us today. How many people today conflate Christianity with conservatism and confuse what it means to be a good American with being a good Christian? 
That confusion might even come from a good place because there's nothing wrong with loving your country. It might even come from a moral place because of certain values. But apart from humility and a love for God, it can keep you from really seeing Jesus. And it happens on the other side of the political aisle with another set of moral laws that are created to fit a personal lifestyle. How many people reject Christianity because of the Bible's sexual ethic? The problem is Jesus and real Christianity don't fit into the sinner's worldview, which is really all about us. And that can easily happen to anyone living in this world, conservative or progressive, old or young, Christian or not. So where are you prone to this danger? Ever feel like you're more concerned with checking off your moral, religious boxes than feeling your need for Jesus? Do you feel safe because you got your lists? Or because you trust in Christ alone? Or ever see someone who appears to love Jesus, love the church, praise a lot, but you look down on because they need, their doctrine needs improvement? Just like these guys in the text, we're all prone to find something good to feel self-righteous about and end up missing Jesus. It's one of the reasons we need to always be reading the Bible with the cross at the center. And not just books on the Christian life, which can be helpful, but slightly off. Like these traditions. And it's why it's so important that we're in the Word every week as a church here. Trying to expose what the author of Scripture wants us to hear and not just what we want to hear. In fact, I hope it's just always clear that everything that we say or do here at Grace Harbor is done in submission to the Word. And our goal is to conform to it as a church and not have it conform to us. Which I hope is an encouragement to you even if you're here and not a Christian. I I want you to be confident that what you're hearing uh, isn't coming from someone with an ulterior motive. Uh, These aren't my thoughts. I I don't believe I have a wiggle room here to, to make this text about us. I'm trying to get to the point of the passage and get it right. So you may not like or agree with what you hear, but at least you know it's what the Bible says. And we should all know what the Bible says. And the truth is, the Bible is God's word. So come here, listen to these sermons, put them into practice, and see if God's word doesn't prove true. Our prayer for everyone, but especially if you're here and you're not a Christian, is that you will begin to experience the kind of spiritual healing that this text is pointing us to. And I would encourage you to pray that you would. Because here's the reality. It's possible to be right around Jesus, even to experience his blessings and not know him. Just like this man. Verse 13, he has no idea who it was who healed him. Experience his blessings remarkably healed, doesn't know Jesus. But look at what happens next. Verse 14. After this, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, the story could have ended there in verse 13. 
But Jesus initiates yet another encounter with this man and says something even more important than get up, pick up your mat, and walk. What he says in verse 14, by his own admission, is more important than that. See, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Now, I can't imagine what might be going through this guy's mind and heart when Jesus says that. For one, he calls the man a sinner. And it's clear if he doesn't repent, something worse will happen. Something worse than what he's been dealing with for the last 38 years. Now, does that mean our sin causes suffering like this man experienced? Well, sometimes, yes. We read about people getting sick and dying in 1 Corinthians 7 because of division in the church. But in a spiritually broken and rebellious world, we often suffer because of our righteousness. Uh, Peter tells us that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer. And sometimes God brings suffering into our lives to wean us off the world and help us fight sin. Uh, Paul's given a thorn in the flesh, and that works out for his good. So there are lots of reasons that we might suffer in this world, just like this man, and it's not because of personal sin. So was this one because of personal sin? Maybe. Is his suffering the consequence of sin? Absolutely. Jesus can speak like he does in verse 14 to everyone in this room because we're all sinners living in a broken world feeling the effects of sin every day. So having been relieved of one of the realities of sin's curse upon the world, Jesus calls him to respond. Repent so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Again, you can imagine how surprising and disorienting this must be for this guy. Jesus just healed him. Clearly, Jesus feels compassion for him. So isn't it surprising to get a warning from Jesus at this point? Many of us might assume we're good with God because good things are happening in our life. Why should anyone assume that God has a problem with them when he's blessing them? But then again, when things are bad, we also blame God. As as we saw last week in the text that Travis preached, instead of repenting under God's judgment, we, we push him out. So it seems like blessing, we assume we're good with God. Problems, God, get out of here. And both things are a problem. So if God in his kindness is blessing your life today, or if he brings some trial into your life and you suffer, if you're going to respond rightly in either one of those scenarios, you need to always move towards him. Good or bad, blessing or or curse, let those things push you to Jesus. Make all of life and what happens about him, not you. Live for him from a place of humility and thanksgiving. And don't take God's kindness for granted. And trample upon his grace by ignoring your sin. Because it results in something much worse than 38 years of paralysis. Now, some of us want to point our finger at Jesus right here and tell him, be kind. Right? That's, that's not loving to say that. Because warnings like this don't make people feel good. And people today tend to determine what's true or good based on how we feel about it. But while warnings don't feel good, they most certainly are good and loving. 
So you might not like that sign that says you need to turn around, you know, because it, it ruins your drive. But if there's a cliff on the other side of that sign, you should be thankful and obey it. And this is a warning from Jesus that we all need to hear. Being, because worse than 38 years of being crippled, or just fill in whatever your own suffering is, you know, worse than remaining single, worse than remaining poor, worse than remaining in chronic pain, worse than whatever your suffering is, is what Jesus says earlier in John 3.36, remaining under the wrath of God. Which means even though this man has now experienced and tasted God's new creation promises, he may yet still miss out on the real thing. Though you've experienced many of God's blessings in this life, It doesn't matter how much he's given you or how good you've got it. It's no guarantee that you'll have any part of the real thing. True life, according to the Bible, is knowing God and his son. It's enjoying him in his presence apart from sin. The world that we live in is clearly still under judgment and feeling the effects of sin. It is not a perfect world. And yet it's only a partial judgment. There's still much good in this world. Many of the joys of heaven can be experienced today in this life. We can taste it. But in the same way that the fullness of life and joy and the new creation is still coming, so is the fullness of judgment and death. And so whatever psychological and emotional and physical experience that will be, it is much worse than a crippling 38 years in this world. One of the great dangers that the church can easily slip into is being more concerned about what Jesus does in verse 8 than what he says in verse 14. Many Christians will devote much of their time to relieving the effects of sin in this world rather than calling for repentance and life in the next. It's much easier and maybe more exciting for us to see social change, physical change of life in this world than to talk about repentance and warn people of God's wrath. The latter sounds offensive and unloving. And so some people reduce Christianity to the works of Jesus and being merciful like him, doing acts of kindness like him, and say, that's Christianity, while neglecting to warn others of something much worse. Now, Jesus does both. And so, we should too. I'm I'm glad we support ministries like the Rescue Mission. I'm so thankful to be a part of what Jonathan Reed is doing for for children in the foster care system. And I believe that Christians, among all people in this world, should feel a real burden and are best equipped and motivated to be part of the healing process for those suffering in this world. Let's, Let's be part of displaying the gospel reality of the coming new creation. That is exciting work. Christians ought to be doing that. But let's be like Jesus 
and never let it in there. Okay, mercy ministries are good. They do good work, but they're not an end in and of themselves, not for Christians. There's a bigger, more important problem that people need to be healed of, relieved of. And that's part of the work that Jesus came to do. That's why he says, I came to preach the good news of repentance because the kingdom of heaven is near. Preaching the good news of the gospel is part of his food in chapter 4, which is his father's work to reap this harvest of salvation among the nations. So his compassion for this man doesn't end with healing him. Jesus desires more for him. And so in love, he tells him, see, you are well. Do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. So how does he respond? Well, it doesn't seem great. Verse 15, the man went and reported to to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. We don't know why he goes back and tells the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. Again, it doesn't look great. It looks like he's trying to get back on their good side. Uh, But he could be testifying about what Jesus did for him. What's important for John is that this sets up the confrontation between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And it's almost breathtaking. The end of verse 15 says, It was Jesus who made him well. And then verse 16, Therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. The man was disabled, but clearly they're blind. They're sitting here talking to a guy who had been crippled for 38 years walking, but they can't see Jesus. And John wants us to see that because it's clear in the text. Verse 6, get well. Verse 9, got well. Verse 10, healed. Verse 11, made well. Verse 13, healed. Verse 14, are well. Verse 15, made well. Verse 16, therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. They look right past this miraculous healing because Jesus doesn't fit their worldview. They don't see who Jesus is. Because they don't understand the work he's doing. Because they don't see their need for that work. They've got their law. And that works for them. And so all they can see is a guy breaking a rule. And they miss out on the Messiah. What do you see? If you don't see yourself as a sinner then you'll never see Jesus. Your deepest needs will be confined to this world. And you'll trust in whomever or whatever might take care of your temporary problems. And then you'll die. But the hope of the gospel is that Jesus can be trusted in life and death because of what he's done on the cross and has guaranteed to complete that work when he returns. Let's respond and let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks for this hope. This real living hope that we have because of who Jesus is and what he has done. 
So God, we pray that your spirit would work now in us and help us to trust him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.